Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Mpoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 29th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Pope Francis on Wednesday asked the public to pray for former Pope Benedict, who he said is very sick. I want you to go and keep order. Some soldiers who are being deployed to restore order sometimes would go and disorganize order. The South Sudan government graduates 720 troops who will be sent to the Democratic Republic of Congo on a peacekeeping mission. She says they're singing a peace song, but the peace agreement doesn't answer or address the fundamental questions that Ethiopian societies collectively have. And we take a look at Ethiopia's two-year-long civil war and the prospects of peace. Doosters and more coming up on Daybreak Africa. The South Sudan government yesterday graduated 720 troops who will be sent to the Democratic Republic of Congo on a peacekeeping mission. Addressing the troops at South Sudan's military headquarters outside Juba, President Salva Kiir called on them to maintain maximum discipline on their mission. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wudu reports from Juba. Hundreds of South Sudanese troops during a parade at Belfam, the country's military headquarters, outskirts of the capital Juba. The battalion of 720 soldiers graduated earlier today after completing a refresher course over the past few weeks. They are destined for deployment to the restive Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo or DRC. The deployment is part of the East African community's effort to fight rebels in the region and restore peace and stability. At the graduation ceremony, President Salva Kiir told the troops to maintain good discipline and obey the mandate of the peacekeeping mission. I warn you to keep Nazam. I want you to go and keep order. Some soldiers who are being deployed to restore order sometimes would go and disorganize order. They will go and start misbehaving with girls and women. Don't do that. Don't take anything from anyone's shop or anything from the hands of a civilian. This is not the work you have gone for. Instead, help the civilians where there is trouble and protecting the civilians and their property. This is the first time South Sudan is contributing forces to the peacekeeping mission in the DRC. President Kiir directed the forces to remain united while serving in the DRC. Another thing I want to tell you, you are going as a national army, not tribal army or army of parties. You are a national army. You must work in the name of the flag of South Sudan. Angelina Tenney, South Sudan's defense minister, says the deployment of the South Sudan People's Defense Force soldiers is a response to a request call from the East African Community, or EAC. In June, the EAC decided to deploy a regional force in eastern DRC. Kenya and Uganda already have sent troops. The regional force is expected to work with the DRC military and administrative forces. Tenney describes the call for South Sudan to contribute 
troops to the mission as an opportunity. And, uh, we are very, very proud today because our flag of the Republic of South Sudan is going to be flying as a regional force to continue to, to contribute to stability and peace. And uh, what I was saying there is that this is a great opportunity, a great opportunity for us to actually change the image uh, of this country. Dozens of rebel groups operating in the eastern DRC and the M23 is one of the largest. Fighting between the M23 and the DRC army has escalated in recent months. At least 8,000 people have died in violence since 2017. The United Nations and a Kivu security tracker which monitors conflict and human rights violations say 5.5 million people have been displaced, 700,000 just this past year. The Norwegian Refugee Council described the conflict as the world's most overlooked under-addressed refugee crisis in 2021. The Africa Center for Strategic Studies, an arm of the U.S. Department of Defense, warned in a report this year that if the conflict in eastern DRC is left unchecked, it risks reigniting interstate conflict in the Great Lakes region. For VON News, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. The South Sudan's People's Defense Forces say an armed group known as the White Army attacked some of its bases in the Greater Pibo Administrative Area. The Deputy Chief Administrator of the Greater Pibo Administrative Area says the military is in full control of Gamruk County. For VOA News, Deng Gai Deng reports from Buo. Military spokesman Major General Lul Roy Kong says the White Army militia from Jongolei State has attacked South Sudan People's Defense Force bases in Gumruk and Lirkwangule in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area. Kong says soldiers from the SSPDF's Agrip Independent Brigade in the area fought back before withdrawing from Gumruk. On the 26th uh, December 2022, uh, Gumruk and uh, Lirkwangule towns came and uh, coordinated attacks from armed youth suspected to have come from uh, Greater Jongolei. Uh, the force that was deployed uh, in Gubruk uh, resisted uh, their advances for the whole of the afternoon, but uh, in the early hours of, uh, of December 27, they, uh, they withdrew back to Pibor. And as of uh, that day, the armed youth from Greater Jongolei effectively took control of Gumruk. General Kong says SSPDF soldiers who withdrew from Gumruk are still battling in Kongor village in the Lirkwangule Payam. He says attacks on government-held bases are, in his words, a clear act of rebellion that must be dealt with. Of course it is unacceptable for, for armed civilians to deliberately uh, attack governmental positions with, with barracks like the one that uh, we heard on Kubruk. It was a declaration on the government because if, if they are raiders, if they are looking for cattle, they are looking for livestock, do a military barrack of such a livestock, we do not have, when, they, when our base came under attack, it was not having any livestock. General Kong says the National Army is mandated to protect civilians and their property. He says if the militia does not withdraw from the Greater Pibor administrative area, the SSPDF will continue to fight. When they uh, attacked uh, Bumruk, our forces fought back in self-defense. But of course they were outnumbered, they were outgunned, and as a result they had to pull back. Okay. You know the, the White Army came in thousands. I'm sure you had, you had seen the statement I released. 
Mm. It was strongly worded. And if they do not stop attacking our positions, we'll continue engaging with them. We'll continue engaging them. John Abula, the Deputy Chief Administrator of the Greater Pibor Administrative Area, says the security situation is worrying as the White Army controls Gumru County. Abula says the area's residents have fled their homes. Where there is, there is fighting always, there will be no any civilian that can, can endure to stay in, in that terrible situation. They, they scattered to the bushes. They are not in town. So there will be no food, there is no food, there is no shelters, and there is no even medical services for them. So automatically it needs the, the humanitarian agencies and the government and the national government to, to come up with something that can rescue these people. Deputy Chief Administrator Abula hedges the national government in Juba to intervene in Pibor. He also urges his counterparts in Jonglei state to ask their youth to stop fighting and return to the estate. South Sudan in focus contacted Information Minister Michael McQuay to comment on this story, but he did not answer his phone. Yesterday, Abraham Kelang, the Information Minister in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area, told this program that at least 56 people have been killed and 17 others injured in attacks. John Samuel Manuon, the Jongolei State Information Minister, condemned the attacks and called on the armed youth to return to their homes immediately and said attacking neighbors is criminal and unacceptable. For VOA News, I am Deng Gaiding in Bor. Pope Francis on Wednesday asked the public to pray for former Pope Benedict, who he said is very sick. Reuters says the Vatican has not offered details on the state of his health. The news service says in recent months, the 95-year-old Pope Emeritus appeared frail and exceptionally weak, though his mind was still sharp. Benedict was the first German Pope in 1,000 years when he was elected in 2005 following the passing of Pope John Paul II. During his term, he apologized for church scandals over allegations of abuse of children by the clergy and worked to support the victims. However, Reuters notes that a report in 2022 accused him of failing to stop four predatory priests while Archbishop of Munich in the 1980s. Benedict resigned 10 years ago for health reasons, being the first pontiff to step down in the six centuries. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 29th. VOA Son of Africa service recently hosted an, a discussion about Ethiopia's two-year-long civil war and the prospects for peace. VOA's Salim Solomon attended the event and has this report. There were emotional moments and moments of disagreement, but most of the attendees at a town hall organized by VOA's Horn of Africa service showed that it is possible to have a civil and honest discussion about the future of their home country, Ethiopia. Etna Hapte is an assistant professor at James Madison University specializing in the political history of Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. 
He said, to move forward beyond ethnic divisions, it is important to debate and negotiate to get clarity. The problem in this country isn't something that started in a day or two. The problems in this country date back 150 years, he said. As Ethiopians around the world anxiously watch to see if a fragile peace agreement will hold, this group of people from the Ethiopian diaspora gathered in VOA headquarters in Washington in early December. The Ethiopia Path to Peace televised event brought together activists, scholars, and others from multiple ethnic groups for a rare opportunity to speak about the two years of conflict that has torn the country apart. Maaza Gebra Medhin, a Tigran activist, researcher, and human rights advocate, was one of the panelists. She is relieved about the peace agreement, but does not believe it is enough to address the underlying causes of the war. She says they're singing a peace song, but the peace agreement doesn't answer or address the fundamental questions that Ethiopian societies collectively have. Panelists believe there's a long road ahead to establish a durable peace. Henok Abebe, a member of the Ethiopian diaspora who specialized in human rights law, said the country finds itself in a precarious situation. Tigray suffered immensely, Henok said, but in order to move forward, the country must also acknowledge the damage done in the Afar and Amhara regions. Yes, there was distraction because of the war, but we should ask, was there an intention to eliminate the people as people? It is difficult to imply the intention, but that doesn't mean attacks and suffering didn't happen, he added. On November 2nd, the Ethiopian federal government signed a peace agreement with the leadership in the Tigray region in Pretoria, South Africa, days before the war marked its second anniversary. The fact that the ceasefire has stopped the bloodshed is a big achievement and the opening of humanitarian corridors is a promising sign, some said, but most agreed that there is a need for accountability. Alamayo Buru, political philosophy professor, said if fundamental issues aren't addressed, there is potential for war to relapse. The peace agreement is a negative peace because violence has stopped, he said. But to go further, the opportunity of a ceasefire is important, and gleaning from conflicts in other parts of Africa to understand the logical pattern of war and address the core issues of how the war started, he said. Darasa Getacho, an associate professor of sociology in New York, struck a more conciliatory tone, saying, for true healing to begin, empathy across ethnic lines is needed. What surprises me is that as much as some people are dedicated to their own side and ethnicity, why is it difficult to empathize with those who live side by side when they are suffering, he said. When are we going to cut the cycle of never-ending crimes and continuous feelings of being attacked and build a country that is enough for all of us and stands for justice, equality and democracy? When are we going to be human, he asked. The war in Tigray has displaced thousands, causing a shortage of food, medication, and access to basic care for millions of people living in the region. Salem Solomon, VOA News, Washington. Millions of Africans depend on fish for their main meal, but the price of ice, nets, and other base commodities that West African fishermen need to do their work has skyrocketed in recent weeks. Soaring fuel prices caused by the Russian-Ukraine war and other factors have hit fishermen and working-class communities hard. The World Food Programme says 
Food insecurity exists in at least eight West and Central African countries and is expected to worsen in 2023. Some 48 million people are expected to face hunger there in the next year, according to the UN. Ndiaga Gwe, Regional Senior Fisheries Officer for the Food and Agriculture Organization and acting FAO country representative in Ghana, says the price of ice alone, which fishermen on a multi-day journey need to store their catch, has soared in one week. If we take the, the cost of ice as an example, this will have an impact on the conservation of the products. Just a lot of post-harvest losses. It is the same with the cost of the other production tools like uh, fishing gears, uh, nets uh, and others. It really has an impact on the cost of production. And of course, if the price of the, the nets and other tools like engines and uh, oils are uh, high, it will impact the renewal of the equipment that is largely depreciated because fishermen they need to renew their equipment but because of the high prices now the inflation rate is so high that they are facing serious problems how many countries and how many people rely on fish for their you know main source of food for a meal only in west africa one can say that maybe more than 10 million people are directly or indirectly involved in the, the fishing sector to be more precise, I can say that, for instance, if you take a country like Senegal or Sierra Leone, fish is a staple food. In Senegal, maybe 75% of animal protein intakes come from the fish and fishery products. So it is a serious concern in many of these West African countries, not only those who have coastal zone, but even in the inland Fish and fishery products are extremely important, and they are facing the same problem than those communities living near the seashore. So it is really a global, let's say, concern in the Sahel and the West Africa region. I understand that this is really affecting a lot of children, too. The, the UN um, is reporting that around 48 million people are expected to face hunger in the region next year, and 9 million of them are children. Do, you, do, do people actually... See that in the in you know the everyday life of, of people there in Sierra Leone and Senegal and other West African countries. Yes, I can say yes. They are experiencing this kind of difficulties to have access to the fish and fishery products because simply due to the lack of tools and equipments and means for fishermen to go. But it's not only because of the soaring prices but also because, uh, unfortunately, the capacity of uh, production by, uh, by our seas is at least at the, the ceiling. We cannot produce more than we are producing nowadays. How big of a, a factor was the Russian invasion in Ukraine with the fuel prices there? Recently, there was a study done by FAO and ECOWAS, the East Economic, the Economic Committee, Commission for West African States. And this study, which was conducted last August, showed that with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, there was, for instance, a deficit of fertilizer of 1.2 to 1.5 million tons. And this is representing a loss of cereal production of about 20 million tons. So there is undoubtedly one of the factors 
in the food crisis is the Russian-Ukraine crisis. But there are also some other factors. For instance, the civil insecurity. Now in the Sahel region, we have more or less 5 million internally displaced persons, IDPs. Also, the, the COVID crisis is still there. And it's sustained an increase in the price of basic food stuff. So we all know that uh, how climate change is affecting the agriculture sector, agriculture in a very broad sense. That's Ndaiga Gray, Regional Senior Fisheries Officer for the FAO and Acting Country Representative in Ghana. He was speaking with my colleague Caravan Dam from Dakar, Senegal. Cameroonian football legend Samuel Eto'o is being graded after one year in charge of the country's football federation. Eto'o is described by his country's football fans as a revolutionary leader. Among his achievements is the institution of at least $100 as monthly pay for players in local championships. Despite the achievements, the 41-year-old Eto'o is accused of being highly dictatorial. Moki Edwin Kinzikam filed a feature from Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. Hundreds of fans applaud as Cameroon's football legend Samuel Eto'o Fist announces that all local games, including league matches, will henceforth be broadcast live on local radio and TV stations. Eto says he wants the world to know that Cameroon football has greatly improved since he became president of the Federation of Cameroon Football Fekafoot in December 2021. He says besides the satisfaction he derives from Cameroon's participation at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, he is particularly delighted over the calm serenity and transparent management of resources and personnel at the Cameroon Football Federation, FECAFOOT. He says he will give visibility to Cameroon's football through live broadcasts of matches by local media. Eto says he is at the service of 17 million Cameroonians and that he is happy that he appointed Rigobert Song Bahana, a Cameroonian former player, as head coach of the country's national soccer team, the Indomitable Lions. The former Barcelona and Inter Milan star, prior to his election, promised to transform Cameroon football and give players, coaches and other key actors rightful places. He promised to fight corruption, he said, was rocking Cameroon's football administration with players paying a bribe to play in the country's top clubs and the national team, the Indomitable Lions. Ramon Elume, a Yaoundé-based football analyst, says Eto's first achievement is that he stopped the division that rocked Cameroon football by negotiating an end to cases filed over the legitimacy of the president of Fekafoot. At the level of the Court of Appreciation of Sport or at the level of the Swiss Federal Tribunal, he has been able to put these warring factions to rest. The players are quite happy, given that Fekafoot has set rules as to how they should get paid, when they should get paid. Elume said Cameroon now has over a thousand youth football clubs. Players in local championships receive monthly salaries of at least $50. Before Eto's arrival, Clubs paid only victory bonuses of about $10 to players after matches. 
Cameroon's Ministry of Sports accused Fekafoot's executive before Samuel Eto of shabby treatment given players. Cameroon said at least 300 football players had left the country in search of better contracts in Europe and some parts of Africa. Amoki Edwin Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. As we approach the end of the year 2022, we want to give you, our loyal listeners, the opportunity to wish your loved ones a happy new year. Call us on our WhatsApp number 202-258-3076. Leave a brief message and listen for it right here on VOA. The number again, 202-258-3076. Let VOA help you bring cheer and blessings to friends and family by just calling 202-258-3076. And that's it for this Thursday, December 29th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas Mpuga in Washington, wishing you a very great day.